I am not going to live my life like this anymore um, because it's pure treachery. It's pure anguish. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is your host, Al Levin. I'm excited. Today on the line, we have Chris Agudo. Chris is a delivery driver, a suicide attempt survivor, an author, and the co-founder of Living Is So Big. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure. I'm very excited to talk with you and and to have people listen to my story and uh, chip away at the stigma. Absolutely. And I, uh, I'm looking forward to hear about some of your current work, too, when we get there, because I know you're doing an awful lot yourself to work uh, against the stigma and supporting others in their journeys as well. But I believe you have uh, one brother and your folks. And where'd you grow up? Uh, so I was born in New Jersey and I grew up for a good portion of my life in New Jersey. Um, but... There was also the movement that occurred uh, to different states based on my father's job, which would have been living in Kansas, uh, living in Florida. Uh, so it was, you know, a, a kind of uh, permanent in the beginning and then moving around periodically, uh, being able to experience different schools, uh, meeting new people. And it was it was quite the journey, to say the least. Was this like elementary school days when you were making these moves? Uh, elementary school, I was primarily in New Jersey. And as far as leading up into junior high, I was still in New Jersey, but a different school, a different uh, city town. And then uh, moving into Kansas throughout the junior high experience, finishing up uh, high school there, but um, being in different high schools. And then actually moving to Florida and graduating in Florida. Okay. Wow. Quite a few moves. So I love how you put um, a really positive spin on it, which was, you know, making new friends, going to new schools. But man, those, some of those age groups, like leaving friends when you're in junior high, leaving friends at high school, those can be really, really challenging times for kids. Was there much struggle for you as well as you had to pick up and leave current friends? Uh, no, um, initially it was kind of strange to me, but it, it got to the point where it was just acceptable. Um, and I, I kind of formed a mentality that it was, it was fun. Um, for the most part, I didn't really break my shyness shell until le the latter part of my high school experience. So I was, I was really an anti-social shy kind of a kid growing up, um, and I would have, you know, a little pocket of friends here and there. Uh, it never really did bother me. Uh, so it was it was one of those things where I just kind of, you know, took it with a grain of salt and, and look, looked forward towards what was next. Right. And you have a brother four years older than you. Is that right? 
Yeah, he's four years older. He was uh, born in 88, and I'm, uh, I was born in 1992. Um, so we've always had that connection. He was never old enough to where I couldn't hang out with him. Of course, he did have his own friends and whatnot, but um, we, all, we had a childhood that was pretty typical uh, concerning brothers. Yeah, so you guys got along well. We did. We did. We, you know, there was a typical sibling rivalry, you know, typical, oh, you know, yeah. how that goes. It, it was fun growing up, but, um, it, it was definitely a, a blessing to have him in my life as far as, um, siblings. Right. Cool. So you, you got this moving around. You talked about being a bit antisocial. What else was school like for you? Did you dread going to school because you were antisocial? Uh, you know, I, I look at that and I, and I look back on it in retrospect and I see there were days that I wish, oh, you know, I, I can't wait uh, for the, you know, the snow day to happen. So I don't have to go to school or, you know, um, there were, there were plenty of days where I skipped school and I, as I'm sure, um, you know, many kids, uh, ha- have done back in the day or, or attempt to, it's, it's not advised. I don't advise that at all, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was something, it was fun. There were, um, brief moments where I was kind of like mm, a little tired of it, you know, like the pop quizzes, bringing homework, uh, even in elementary school, there was a period of time where I like hid my homework in the bottom of my backpack to try to get away from it. But uh, overall, I kept I kept on with it and I did graduate and uh, it was just one of those experiences. And if your uh, folks end up listening to this podcast, is this going to be the first time that they heard about the skipping? <laughs> no, no, they <laughs> They've been made aware. Um, it's ancient history at this point. Uh, I I would say the the most uh, the most part of this that they would be happy to know about is that you know they know I graduated and um, and we're 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 making life happen. We're living it and we're we're moving on. Sounds good. Sounds good. So your story of depression starts when that started in 2010. Uh, it was it was kind of of a rough awakening. And you were how old? Uh, I was seventeen at the time. And you're twenty seven now, so ten years ago. Ten years exact. Yep. And tell us about those times. Well, uh, it would have been when I was in Gainesville, Florida, in uh, this high school called F. W. Buholtz High School. It was a pretty eclectic high school. It had a you can sit anywhere during lunchtime and. They had a giant opening in the ceiling. It was pretty tropical. And so I was finishing my high school there, graduated there. And I guess just to get into it, there was a, a friend of mine and a lesser friend, but was I would still consider a friend. They were drinking and they crashed. And uh, to make a long story short, they their lives were ended. Oh, uh, you're it, kidding. Yeah, it was it – was, uh, it was interesting when I received a call from another friend of mine that lives in the city where that happened. Um, I went through the stages. I heard him and I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. You know, that's a uh, wow. Like that kind of like a response. I didn't I didn't almost believe it at first. I was in denial. I was like, OK. And then it hit me when he spoke to me about the uh, the article. I can check it out at this news website. So I, I checked it out and and it sunk in. And then I went through the different stages and that was the catalyst. That was the, the trigger per se into me getting to the, the dark road that I went down. 
Were, uh, were these close friends of yours? Uh, one of them was a pretty close friend at one point during my high school experience in Olathe, Kansas. Uh, you know, we would hang out. I'd go to his house and, and we'd just hang out and go places. And that was for a, a period of time. Um, and the other friend, uh, didn't really hang out with him per se, but, uh, I did know of him and he was just a very nice, uh, genuine guy. A lot of people liked him and I liked him. He was a great guy. Uh, so, I mean, I would consider both of them friends and I guess that's what made it so impactful for me when I found out that they ended up passing on because of that fact alone. And that, like I said, that was the initial, the initial stone in the pond of and my life. Were these guys living in the same city you were at the time? Uh, I was at the time of their passing. Yes. Uh, I was living in Gainesville, Florida, and, and I was going to graduate there. And I got the phone call from another friend uh, that lived in Olathe, Kansas. And uh, that's where I was prior to living in Gainesville, Florida, uh, at two different high schools there in Olathe, Kansas. So they were actually, the whole event occurred in Olathe, Kansas. Um, the only way I figured it out and probably would have only figured it out is through the other friend that called me to inform me about their passing. Right. Tell us about that. So you said that's where the process started. And you, you, are you talking the process of grieving or the, the process of immediately going into a depression? Uh, I would say in terms of a timeline in terms of like uh, 12 months in terms of a, a single month, it was definitely a lot quicker than it was um, a slower process. It, it happened, I want to say somewhere around February or March, the event occurred. And then uh, April, that's when my uh, suicide attempt occurred. And so it was within the amount of weeks per se that it just boiled down into this, you know, nasty depression that got worse and worse. And it, it led me to that path. What, uh, what were your symptoms of depression like those few months? Right. Well, initially there was just immense, a very large amount of, uh, just this sadness. It was a extreme amount of sadness uh, as if, Mm, a good way to put it is perhaps you have a coat on and then you put a blanket over yourself and then you put a heater on and you're just, you're super hot, but exchange the heat with sadness. It's just sadness over sadness over sadness. And, uh, and there was a brief period of time where there was extreme amounts of anger. The anger was associated with the concept of, Oh, you know, why them? Why not me? You know, they, they were always having fun going to parties. A lot of people liked them. They were, they were great people. Uh, just simply stating why them, why not me? And I, I would get angry. There would be days where I'd go to school and I, I would punch the, uh, the cinder block in the bathroom when no one was in there, just, just out of anger. Um, and I would say those were the two main emotions that I, that I felt in regards to what I was experiencing. Uh, and it wasn't pleasant, but, um, it, it was one of those things. Everybody experiences it differently. Uh, but through my experience, it was a uh, sadness and an anger. It's interesting that you mentioned anger because a lot of people don't understand that anger can actually be a symptom of depression, particularly with men. Oh yeah. I'm, I can definitely see that being the case. And so can you help listeners understand anybody who hears about an accident that acquaintances or friends of theirs had just died in 
would certainly feel a deep, deep sense of grief, right? But they probably would not always, most most typically would not end up into a suicidal depression, right? right? So is there a way for you to kind of explain the difference between what may be a typical grieving process that often still entails anger, but the depression that you actually sank into? So you want... You want me to explain my process versus somebody else that may not go down that far into the- Well, and it this may be really difficult if you've never experienced the grieving process other than these two friends of yours. But so in my mind, like we deal with the death of friends and loved ones, but we don't sink into a deep depression where we decide that we're going to end our lives. Right. So how does one what is the difference between grieving and being really deeply sad and actually being clinically depressed and suicidal okay well from my point of view at the very least uh i would say the difference is that that initial impact hearing about my friends passing on was only the first uh stone thrown into the pond once that really sunk in and I was completely enveloped in a sadness and an anger. It it didn't just stop there. I wasn't just grieving over them at that point. Uh, I was I was furthering it because of the sadness and anger that over consumed my mind and my life at that point. I became so depressed that I added on issues in my life that would make me validate. Okay, this is why I I'm going to go through a suicidal attempt. This is why. This is what makes sense of it. And this is why it's validated. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think that, uh, people that just grieve, I, I, that they add on more to validate something like that. I don't even think it gets to that point where they could say, okay, I'm sad now over, uh, this person passing on. Now I'm just going to up the ante and add more things to be even more sad over. And then uh, it's going to cause me to validate a suicidal attempt in the future. Right. I think that's the main difference. And um, what causes that? I'm not exactly sure. All I know is that when it does happen and that train starts going down the track, it's almost it feels almost as if it's irreversible. Like you started down that path, you're grieving and it's sad and, and then you can get angry and you can potentially feel any sort of emotion depending on your experience. But then once you get going and you don't get help and you don't stop yourself, it's it's a, it's a snowball effect and it will get to the point where you will um, eventually and unfortunately attempt or get very close to it. Right. You just keep spiraling down. So when you say things kept, I forgot exactly how you put it, but one thing on top of the other and what were these other pieces that would make you go down that rabbit hole even further? Right. Well, the something I had been dealing with uh, within my life that never actually put me over the edge, which I'm sure could have, but it didn't. Uh, I was dealing with unexplained, um, for lack of better words, I'll call it a headache phenomena. But they weren't just headaches. Um, they... Pretty much, I, I couldn't go to school anymore. I couldn't be in the light because the light pretty much caused my head to feel even worse. It felt like what I can only imagine the force and the explosion of a bomb. It felt like there was like something exploding in my head 24 7 
we've been to the Mayo Clinic in, in Ohio. We've been to uh, specialists. They were going up and down with different diagnoses. They could never figure it out. And the only thing that did help me was going to sleep. But then when I, upon awakening, I would just be there with the uh, head feeling like it's going to explode phenomena. So I was dealing with that for 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 a good amount of time. Um, and the only thing that actually did help me with that, were, uh, which we discovered, were spinal taps. It's a very long needle they put at the base of your spine. They inject it and remove spinal fluid. Um, and the pressure, my head felt normal for a period of time after that, but the pressure and the pain would come back. So we would do that a couple times, and that was plaguing on my life. Um, so I was dealing with that. Uh, my, you know, the friends were the catalyst or the trigger. Once I figured out about them, then I became sad and angry. And then I started thinking about, oh, wow, well, they passed on. That's why them? Why not me? Oh, wow, I'm dealing with these terrible headaches, these terrible head feeling like they're going to explode phenomena. Uh, this is going to explode and it's not going away. Will it ever go away? Oh, wow. The, the, the girl I like is in Kansas. The previous day I was at that was there and now I'm in Florida and and I don't know if we could ever get back together and uh, oh wow my grades my grades are just going down the toilet they're getting worse and worse and worse and that's all I would focus on that's all I would focus on anything of light anything positive any any potential you know greatness or good feelings I completely blocked it was there was no entry point into my life or into my mind to even contemplate those things um, so those four major things that I just mentioned were the were the things in which um, I just piled on top of each other and uh, in my own self uh, mind validated this is why you know life isn't worth living anymore and I and I and I should end it. How long had you been dealing with the headaches? Uh, they it was it was from my point of view when I was dealing with the headaches. Time was – there was no time because I was laying down for the most part of the day for many days, for weeks or months. Uh, I couldn't do anything. I was home. So I didn't even know what the date was. I didn't know what time it was, if it was day or night. Couldn't keep the lights on in the house. Um, but looking back on it retrospect, I never did look deep into that. I never did look deep into what you know time frame and how long it did occur. I would say it started initially – it's, there was a part of time where I did have a headache or so uh, in my junior high in Olathe, Kansas, and then it, it lasted very minimal, and then it um, came back in the high school time frame. Uh, I would say, let's see, the later part, uh, probably the later part of the summer after s sophomore year, uh, going into um, junior year a little bit, and uh, and then going to the Mayo Clinic uh, in Ohio, and then, you know, going down to Florida because uh, we had family there. And that it went away periodically. And the only thing we could think about was, oh, wow, the elevation difference from Florida at sea level to Kansas is different. Therefore, it lessened the pressure. So we're going to move. My parents and myself, we moved. Uh, it would come and go. And it was just not going away. And, so you, uh, you primarily moved? essentially to get rid of the headaches yeah yeah it wow. was some it was something that my parents you know they didn't want to see me live with um for the rest of my life that nothing was working the doctors um 
initially it was the uh, family doctor. If I can recall correct, it was a family doctor. Um, he, he couldn't figure it out. Uh, then it was going to the hospital, the nearby hospital and just staying there for however long I stayed there. And, you know, it, there was no success and then getting transplanted to the, the Mayo Clinic in Ohio, which is, which is a specialist location that deals with very intensive cases, very extensive and intensive. And, uh, and they came across a couple of things and, but yet nothing helped. They, they didn't even, you know, figure it out per se. The only thing that did help was, okay, let's take a break, go, go to Florida. Let's try something new. Let's change it. And the minute when I got there, uh, a little, a little bit of time passed by and the headaches just, they, it was magical. It was as if they vanished, they disappeared. And I was like, wow, I feel better. This is, this is really crazy. And because of that, um, they, they noticed that and they said, well, maybe it's the elevation. We don't know at this point, let's move. So they just picked up and we moved. Did you miss a, a bunch of school throughout those headaches? You mentioned just being in bed a lot. Oh yeah, I got homeschooled. I got homes like homeschooled with this lady. It was it was serious. Like they uh, originally it was just I was out of school, but then it's I was out of school for too long. So then this lady had to help me with uh you know the courses or you know homework or this or that, and uh, it helped it helped me get through you know being able to eventually graduate. Essentially, just being able to go through the process and not staying behind. Um, so it was a it was it was a very unfortunate period of life, but I did get homeschooled and I was home. And being home wasn't even fun. I couldn't do anything. It was I could barely move. I the only way to go to sleep was to be um, on an angle. So I had to go to sleep on the couch that reclined because if I went down straight with the horizontal uh, laying down, it would my head pressure would go through the roof. So I mean, it was, that just must have been so so trying for a, a kid at that age where others are out playing sports, hanging out with their friends, and you're inside getting homeschooled, dealing with a, a headache that feels like an explosion in your head. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, in, a, in a weird but good way, uh, you would think, oh, somebody going through that would, would want to just give up. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what kept me fueled to keep on moving forward. But uh, I just didn't give up when I was experiencing that. It would have been understandable uh, because the fact that I experienced it, I know, you know, if, I, if other people do experience that, I know what they're going through. And it's it's one of the rough. I wouldn't wish that on any enemy or anybody. That's the worst possible thing. Um, but that, for some reason, didn't bring me down to rock bottom. I just I just pushed through it. Yeah. So it's interesting because you talk about this unexplained headache and one of the symptoms that I've read about for depression is unexplained physical ailments. Really? I did not know that. And wow. I wonder, you know, obviously I'm no doctor or anything, but I would imagine an overwhelming amount of stress and depression could probably result in headaches. So tell us, you, you find out your friends have passed away tragically in an accident. It sounds horrendous to have to deal with. You're dealing with the headaches, the loss of a girlfriend. So are you, uh, tell us a little bit more about your depression and the, the lead up to what becomes a suicide attempt. All right. Well, it was essentially, like you just said, it was the, you know, the friends passing on the headaches that weren't going away. Uh, the, the girl that is just in another state and might never be together. And, uh, 
the grades. And this, all of this, just this big pile of um, anguish was my entire world. That's all I focused on. And because of that, um, I, I came to the conclusion that, hey, this is all life is chalked up to be at this point, And I don't think it'll ever get better. This is, this is what it's going to be. And I'm just going to end my life. It was a conclusive fact in my mind. And there was, even though I didn't reach out and get help, um, they, in my mind, even if I did, no one would have been able to help. It was just that strong. Uh, so I made the decision, you know what? Well, spring break is coming up, uh, pretty soon. Let me, uh, visit my brother and any friends that I've had over there in Kansas before I moved, uh, here to Florida and uh, just visit them, see them one last time. You know, I see my parents, I'm living with my parents here and, you know, I get to be with them for this amount of time and then I'll go see my brother and my friends on spring break and, you know, uh, go there, have, have whatever I can have as, out of enjoyment with them and then uh, do the deed, which, which is what I call the do the deed of, of ending my life. And uh, that was pretty much the exact, you know, uh, timeline of how it occurred how Uh, long had you been thinking about that before taking off to see your brother uh to go visit during spring break yeah with the plan of ending your life while you were there uh i would say a good mm, couple of weeks uh, about it was it was a short period it was a short brief period of time even though it was a short brief period of time it it seemed to go very slow. I was dreading sitting in school. I was dreading sitting in class, listening to the people, you know, teach the lectures. And I was just like, it didn't matter to me anymore, but I had to go through it, put on that mask, not have any exposure towards um, people noticing this depression. And I had to put a mask on and just go through with it like nothing was wrong. I didn't want the plants foiled. And when you came up with the plan and decided this is what I'm going to do and I'm uh, you know, I'll go out and see my brother and some some of those my old friends from there. When you had made that decision, sometimes people talk about almost a feeling of elation, like ah, this was like all of a sudden you go from being so down and horrible because you've made this decision. All of a sudden, people become a little more not elated, but a little happier, and it, it's one of those symptoms that you're supposed to look out for. Did you feel that way? I mean, were you kind of in a happy place knowing that, believing that you were going to end it all and it would be coming to an end? I wouldn't, uh, personally, through my experience, I wouldn't say happy. I would say relieved. Um, There was this notion of, you know, uh, I'm not, I am not going to live my life like this anymore um, because it's pure treachery, it's pure anguish, and there's no way this is going to happen. So once I've concluded and determined and made fact of knowing that, hey, this is going to happen, uh, that life was going to be no more, and I was going to move on to whatever is after life, uh, I felt relieved. I yeah. was still, I was still extremely depressed and sad. The anger did subside eventually, um, based off of my friends that passed on. That was tagged to them. That was where the anger came in. Um, that kind of diminished over time. But the sadness and that depression was so strong, it was uh, consuming my brain and my mind and my entire state of being where I was just relieved with the idea that 
it's going to happen. I'm not going to be here. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know, I think my, uh, saying happy and elated are definitely not proper terms, but a sense of relief. And then, you know, you feeling a sense of relief, people may notice a change in your demeanor possibly because of that release. Um, so you end up, uh, going and visiting your brother. I do. They, uh, my brother and a friend of his actually picked me up at the airport. Um, and had you told anybody at all about this plan? Uh, absolutely zero people. Um, this was just, uh, you know, top secret in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. No one can know because then, you know, I might get put into a psych place or I might be evaluated and then I can't do anything. Right. So tell us about what happens when you, you get to your brother and friends. Yeah. Uh, so I saw him uh, there. It was, as far as happiness is concerned, I was happy to see him, but that happiness didn't overcome the sadness and the depression and my overall plan to end my life. It was just a, a relief and a happiness that, okay, you know, I was with my parents, check mark. I got them off my list to be able to hang out with them. I was living with them. And now uh, I'm happy and relieved that I see my brother, check mark. I can, you know, hang out with him and his, his friends and friends of mine and and uh, so they picked me up. Uh, we drove, and uh, he dropped me off at a friend of mine's, a very good friend of mine uh, at the time, uh, more so like a best friend. And I stayed at my best friend's house, uh, hanging out with him. And it was just this process of being with the mask the entire time. You know, nothing's wrong, everything's fine. And even though I was extremely depressed, and even though I was extremely sad. There was this mentality um, that eventually occurred when I was in Kansas on spring break seeing them. And I know you mentioned happy. It was at that time where I felt this feeling of, I would like to say, the fact that I feel relieved and it's going to end. Now that I saw my brother, I was with my parents, I'm seeing my friends and we're hanging out and this whole week is going by. Okay, I can I can relax a little bit. I could um, take some of the weight off, and even though it's gonna happen, there's no doubt in my mind it's gonna happen. I can just say, "All right, let me just let me just have any ounce of fun that I can have with these people at this point." But the entire time, the depression and the sadness were it was still there. It was just I was forcing myself to experience some sort of fun with these final people that I was. Um, being around at the time and were you anticipating actually being able to say a goodbye to your brother and your best friend uh yeah you know um the the good close friends that i had that that i got to hang out with um my brother you know those people um there was this sense of uh, i wish i could have told them hey you're, you're never going to see me again and i'm so glad you were in my life that's how it felt on the inside but Throughout the entire time, it was just, you know, gave them all like a hug, goodbye, this, that, and uh, just the mask, you know, nothing's wrong. It's like, all right, well, I'll see you. Thanks. You know, it's cool hanging out. We'll talk later. Kind of a thing. And so you say goodbye to them. I say goodbye to them. So what happens is it's, it's about, it's spring break. So there's periods of time where I'm hanging out with my brother, hanging out with his friends, which I knew. So they were kind of my friends, hanging out with my personal friends, um, 
So it was like a back and forth kind of a thing. And it, it led up to the final day of spring break, which was, I went to this, this party with uh, a group of just a small handful of friends. Um, and the party, there was plenty of people there or somebody's, somebody's location. And it was one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, this is happening. It's nighttime. Uh, the next morning I'm apparently supposedly supposed to get onto a plane and, and fly back to, to Florida, you know, to get back to my parents and to live there. But the whole time I'm knowing that, Oh, well, I'm not going to get on the plane. I'm not going to actually leave this, this party. I'm going to stay here because once this party is done, I'm going to leave the party. Take, I took my phone off. I shut it off and I just started walking and I, I walked and walked and walked and it was still, you know, dark out. It was midnight hours, probably one, two, three AM. And I was just walking for it felt like forever. It felt like a never ending trip. I didn't know where I was. It was a different different uh town, city. Um it was friends of friends that had the party. So I was just kind of walking to find a location to eventually end my life. And I went down some alleys, I went down some streets. It was a very long route to put to, to put a long story short. It was a long route, and I walked, and eventually, I found this location. It seemed very serene. At this point, I was, I was so tired. I could literally just, I could pass out if I sat down and laid my head on the ground. I knew that I would have passed out, and the quote unquote plan that I had to end my life would have been would have failed. So I had to keep myself awake. It was freezing out. So I, I tried to embrace the cold and, and so I found this location, keeping myself awake the entire time. And I found this tree. This tree was the final part of the plan, which I didn't know up to that point how I was going to end my life. It was just, that just came to me. I was like, there it is. So I climbed the tree and as I'm climbing it, you know, um, my forearm and hands are getting cut up. It's the bark of the tree and whatnot. So it wasn't a fun experience climbing that, but it was high. And when I climbed it, I, I sat on the branch and realized I didn't have anything to go through with this final process. I had a, I had a bandana in my, in my, uh, on me and it wasn't long enough to reach around the branch. So I was like, Oh snap, I can't continue this. What do I do? So I just, I felt like, well, I'm going to have to backtrack, get down off this tree, backtrack this route all the way back to this hardware store that I found way, way, way back. And it probably was, I don't know, 25 to 30 minutes of walking per se. And I backtracked all the way back there. I had enough money on me to buy rope. I, it was a hardware store and I bought enough rope. I just kind of guesstimated what I needed and then I bought it and I walked all the way back. At this point, I'm, I'm extremely tired. Like I could collapse at any minute. My feet are hurting. Uh, I have, I'm all dirty. I probably looked homeless. I mean, from people's points of view, to just walking around with a bag. And it was pretty, it was, it was horrific when I look back on it. And then I backtracked all the way back to the tree. And, uh, and that was it. That, that was, it was, it was the, the relief of knowing this is, this is going to happen. This is a good thing. And I go back up. I make the noose out of the makeshift rope and the bandana. Uh, I tie it really tight around the branch. I pull on it, tug on it, and it doesn't, you know, doesn't come apart. 
And uh, then I tie it to the rope. And, and you know, it's one of those things where I'm contemplating. I'm sitting there for a little bit of time. And I, that's it. Boom. So I, I, I get off the branch and it slips. The, the knot becomes loose and it falls. And I hit the ground. Did not feel good. Was terrible. And so I get back up. And I say, that's not going to happen again. So I, I tie it really tight. I make it even more so. I do what I got to do so it doesn't slip and fall and break apart or whatever. And this time I know it's, it's that's not going to happen again. And before I actually do anything, there's this, this complete silence that overcomes me. Uh, I, this this darkness, uh, that was surrounding me with, it almost felt like the entire time, this process from when I became depressed up until this moment, there was this like, um, third party darkness of it, like a, an entity of its own, just like persuading me and guiding me along the whole process to just go through this action. And, uh, it kind of just evaded evaded me at that point, my mind, my mentality, everything. And I, and I had a silence at that point. And, uh, something told me, you know what, T- turn your phone on. So for some reason I just decided, okay, I'm, I'm just going to turn my phone on. And, um, that's what quote unquote foiled the process because once I turned that phone on, it was nonstop buzzing of just texts and, and missed calls and voicemails and, it was just buzz, 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 like almost as if there was a massager um, just going off like nonstop in, in your hand. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was rough because it was essentially going against what I wanted to do. It was a lot of positivity and love being inserted at that moment via these texts from friends, uh, family voicemails, hearing my parents, hearing friends' voices. It was a it was a very rough patch, a very short period of time where I, I I cried so much like a baby that I couldn't even see the screen anymore. It was it was it was traumatic, but it was what was needed for me in that moment so that I didn't actually go through it. It was a blessing uh, in disguise, even though I didn't feel like it was a blessing, and it and it stopped me from moving forward. I got so mad. Uh, after hearing everything and whatnot, that I actually smashed my phone on the ground. It was, I guess, maybe perhaps so much emotion now that I couldn't go through with the plan and um, that all this positivity and love and light just kind of stuck hold to me based off of turning my phone on and seeing and hearing everybody that uh, it got the best of me, the emotions. I smashed my phone. And at that point, it was as if this weird weight got lifted off of my body and this weird presence and, and this weird negative uh, attachment just left. It's as if everything that I experienced up until that point was uh, absent. Like the desire at that point was gone to actually end my life. Um, and I attribute that to all like the positive uh, incoming uh, text, voice messages, calls, um, everything. So that was a... Uh, it was like a program put in place for me to not go through with the, um, you know, the suicide and, and it worked. I, I mean, it, it absolutely worked. It was the one thing that made me decide to change my mind. And that could be because the entire time I decided not to get help. I decided not to reach out. So no one even knew that, uh, I was, you know, I was gonna 
you know, go through with this. And when it, when it happened with all the calls coming in and everything, all that positivity, perhaps that was, um, just an overload of what I was missing. That was like the help that I got that I didn't get the entire time. And, and at that point, the entire negative weight of depression and, and wanting to end my life and everything, it just, it lifted. And it was kind of, it almost felt supernatural. I couldn't, I can't even explain it properly, but it, it definitely evaded and, and f- felt absent of my presence. And so I, I walked because I couldn't actually, you know, call anyone or say anything. Um, so I had to go to the gas station. I had to find something and I found a gas station and, um, I asked to use the payphone and, uh, they said it was outside. So I walked around back and I had, had some change on me and, called the first person I thought of, which was my parents. And, uh, and I said, I want to go home. And they were super happy to hear, hear my voice. So at that point it was the recovery phase. And, uh, and I got picked up by my parent, uh, not my parents. I got picked up by my brother and the same friend that picked me up at the airport. They picked me up. Uh, yeah. Pretty incredible to, uh, to flip your phone on and hear all of those messages, huh? Yeah, it was, mm, uh, it was, it's like, for instance, if you're freezing, you're freezing cold and your feet is on the ice and, uh, and you get taken from that cold environment and you get warmed up and you're in, and you feel this coziness, this, this, this very comfy feeling and you're warmed up and it's nice and toasty. That's what it felt like at that moment. And it was so foreign to me that I, I didn't know what to do in the moment. All I knew was that it just, I, I felt this weight lifting off of me and the whole wanting to end my life at that moment completely, it left. And I'm guessing that wasn't uh, typical for you to flip your phone on and have a ton of positive messages. And like you said, nobody knew what you were planning on doing. So it's just, uh, just incredible timing to have an overload of positivity sent your way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I made mention to, um, there were a couple little things I did, um, during spring break, uh, when I was with my friends, one for instance was what at the friend's house that I stayed at with the most, um, during my spring break where my brother dropped me off originally, uh, before the party, I was at his place and his, his TV screen was super dusty. Uh, so I just put, um, I put something like I put my initials CJA, don't forget me with my finger, my index finger on the TV screen, just like a little thing. I didn't say anything to him about it. I just, after that, I left. And, um, and at the party itself, another good friend of mine, uh, I was sitting next to him and I was like, I'm not leaving here. And he's like, no. You're like, you know, you got a plane to catch. You, you're going to, you got to go soon or something like that. But, uh, he thought I was joking and I was being serious. And once again, there's the mask, you know, which a lot of people can, can do. And it comes so easily when you're in that state of mind, when you're in that state of being, you put a mask, um, because a lot of people, at least through my experience and from what I heard about through a lot of people's experiences is that, you know, there's this embarrassment or not wanting to reach out for help or, um, just not wanting people to know. And uh, that's what I experienced. So you end up going home after this. 
Yeah, I, I ended up once my brother and his friend picked me up uh, because they were able to, you know, I didn't know where I was. So I just said, oh, I'm at this gas station. Uh, I'm at this gas station and they, they were able to find the gas station. And um, so mm, my parents uh, contacted my brother, told them what was going on and and they showed up. I got greeted by them. Um, I guess they were told, you know, you know, not to make anything seem weird or to like say anything at that time, just to make it seem normal, just to be like, Oh, Hey, it's good to see, you You know, come inside. And, uh, you know, my, uh, his friend, he was, my brother was driving his friend at the time sat in the backseat and they're like, Oh, you can get the passenger seat. Like, you know, to make it seem comfortable, not to make it awkward for me or anything like that. We, we went to, uh, a family friend's house for a little bit while we were there. And I didn't know it at the time, but now looking back on it, it makes sense because they had to, you know, go through the process of contacting the authorities that, hey, we found we found Chris, um, you know, and once the authorities found out and all this, then they had to pick me up. There were two police officers that picked me up uh, at our family friend's house. I went with them and we went to the, ho- the, the hospital. When we got to the hospital, it was, you know, I went straight to... Uh, a hospital room. Who, uh, how did they know what you had just done? Did you share that with them? Uh, what, what had happened was I was being, being in that party. They knew that I had to go home. They knew at the end of spring break that I had to catch a plane the next morning. So I was with my friend that was going to drop me back off at my other friend's house so that I can get dropped off at the, uh, the airport. But, um, the fact that I wasn't at the party anymore, uh, it was a red flag and nobody knew where I was. Cause I didn't tell anybody at the party. And I, I didn't tell my good friend at the party and I just, I just, um, disappeared per se. And so, you know, with my phone off, mm, the fact of the matter was the plane was supposed to take off. Like the morning showed up, no one knew where I was. I wasn't, I didn't get uh, seen by anybody that was supposed to drop me off at the airport. My parents had no idea what was going on. Uh, so there was a freak out session and there was this non understanding of where I was. And so things just, I guess, escalated to a point of not paranoia, but like a very strong concern as far as why is this, what's going on? Did this, did he get, uh, you know, abducted? Did, where is he? What's going on? There's, there's absolutely zero, um, understanding as far as what's happening. And, um, they eventually figured it out because, uh, they, they realized what was going on. And it was one of those, it was one of those things where I played it off so smooth that nobody knew that I was in that state. And, uh, and, and then the following happened, the recovery process. But you said uh, that next morning they brought you to the hospital? No, what had happened was uh, when I got to the family friend's house, we were just, everyone was there like normal, you know, the, the, they were watching, I think it was The Bachelor on TV, and uh, it seemed, you know, like, oh, hey, hey, Chris, you know, they didn't want to make it feel awkward for me, like, hey, I just went through this process. So, but the whole time I felt awkward because I was all dirty and I looked weird. Um, but, uh, they did, they did fine as far as I would assume psychologically to not make me, you know, um, uh, uh, 
I guess, act out or, or feel crazy or anything. And, uh, the police officer showed up. I don't know how long it was. It might've been 30 minutes to an hour, maybe, maybe an hour 30, something like that. And they picked me up and told me, okay, we're going to have to bring you to the hospital. And, and, uh, before that, the, uh, the, the father of the fa- the, the family friends that the house we were at, the guy, he was a really cool guy. And he was just like, okay, you know, these, they're going to come by and pick you up. Uh, and you're going to, you're going to go to the hospital and, and this is what's going to happen. So I just accepted it and, uh, they showed up and I went with them and, um, it was, it was like one, two, three, where eventually, um, you know, I was there, the lady came in, I guess she was the counselor, if I can recall correctly. Um, I had a suicide note in my pocket the entire time. I actually wrote that, uh, when I was still in Florida and I didn't, you know, I wanted to make sure no one knew I was writing it and it was going to be in my pocket for when they found my body. So when I was in the hospital bed, um, that counselor, she had a way of words. It was almost, mm, it was kind of strange, like the, the, the skill she had with her words to be able to just pull things out of me. And, um, and then I was able to go into my pocket and just show her, oh, this is, this is my suicide note. So that was that. Wow. How long were you in the hospital? Uh, that was short-lived in that hospital. That was maybe a couple hours, I would guess, um, looking back on it. And then I got transferred. I would, I would say it was, it turned into like nighttime. Once nighttime happened, I would assume we went, I got transferred via an ambulance to, uh, 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 an actual psych hospital. And I don't believe it was for adults unless it was. And I was a part of the adolescent, um, part of the hospital, but I was 17 at the time. And there were other teenagers in this location where they dropped me off, but it was nighttime. And, uh, you know, I went to sleep there and the next morning happened. I was there for seven days, seven days. And what was it like getting driven there? Were you, how are you feeling? Um, I, at that time, I believe I was, I didn't even know what was happening per se, because it was, I was so tired that I, I must've blacked out. I must've just fell asleep for periods of time. And um, the next thing I know is I am, uh, you know, it's, it's nighttime and I'm on this thing going into this, this, these doors. And, uh, you know, the, this is the point in time where I'm like changing into this, uh, gown or this, this different clothing and things like this. And then I go and they introduce me to this room. It's, it's like sleep time. Apparently everyone's sleeping I just go into this room and my roommate at the time, he was in his bed and uh, he looked over. He didn't know who was coming in here, you know, super night, super dark nighttime, everyone's sleeping. And, and then I just went to sleep and it was kind of foggy in that moment because I guess I didn't really have clarity. I was still emotionally distraught. The chemicals in my brain were probably all misfired and messed up at that moment. And, uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty interesting experience there as well. What were your seven days there like? Was there therapy? Was Did you meet with a psychiatrist, start medications? 
Yeah, that was, you know, because you're not an adult, you have to go with the motions. I didn't have, you know, um, legal precedents to say, oh, you know, I'm not going to take this medication. Um, and so, yeah, there were medications that, you know, they have to check under your tongue, make sure you and took the, you ingested the pill or the this or the that. And, and I went through the motions. Um, while I was there, I was, I would say, um, I'm pretty soon within like this, Second to third day, I was just like, oh, I don't want to be here anymore. This is, I was starting to get antsy. I was starting to get tired. I, you know, I, I was saying, you know, oh, you know, I made the decision not to go through it. I want to live. You know, I'm fine. I feel good. But were I think, you in the room all day or were there classes or? There were classes. There okay. were classes. There was one where you, there was like a meditation class where you close your eyes and you relax, you breathe. Uh, there were time where it was like, um, you can go to a computer and uh, play games. You could, and there were educational, you know, classes with um, people that they, I would assume, hired for the purposes of trying to connect with the us that were there at the time. So, it, looking back on it, it was a very good experience to have. But when when we are there, when people are there, and you know, you're still a teenager essentially. I was 17. It was one of those things where there were other people there that I noticed were feeling the same way I was. It's like, uh, I don't want to be here. Come on. I, you know, I, I'm different. I'm different. I feel good. I'm fine. This is just time consuming and, and aggravating being in this place. It's like, okay, can I, I want to go now. But, um, yeah, you can see it in people that were there, but it's a necessary action that needs to take place to be there. Once you, you know, get found out that you went through a process of an attempt or you almost did or, Anything along the, t- the lines of depression or suicide or anything like that, it's kind of like a watch. You you know, it's a very necessary action to take. And so you did survive there for seven days, it was, huh? Seven days, and yeah. And did your parents know at the time that you were there? Oh, yeah, they did. I mean, immediately, you know, once I uh, called them from the gas station, I got picked up by my brother and I was at my family friends and they were all, you know, conversing with each other okay. immediately. Immediately, they took a plane to go to Kansas um, as fast as they could. And, uh, yeah, they were actually – they showed up at the, initial, the first hospital that I was at with the count, lady counselor that saw me in the hospital room. Uh, they, they were there too. So, I mean, they, they, they went on super speed. They went like uh, – the no time was wasted. Let's just put it that and way. And they spent the full week there as well? They spent the full week in a hospital – or not a hospital, um, in a, a hotel near the hospital that I was located, the psychiatric um, hospital. And they spent it there. And uh, I just, all I knew was, okay, you know, I don't, I didn't want to be there. And I did, I did feel better, but I was just aggravated in that moment. Like many other people were that were around me, just, just having to go through the motions of being there. And once you got out, did you just head straight back home with your folks then? Uh, yeah, I, once I got out, it was, uh, strong relief. Uh, I stayed the night at the hotel that they were at. That was the first night. It was, it was so, it was very relaxing because I was back with my parents. I was with them. I was out of that place. I was in a new environment, you know, I was at the hotel and, and, uh, it was a pretty, pretty profound experience at that point because little did I know the fourth day of my stay at the psychiatric hospital, the the major 
whatever her title was, she was like the main psychiatrist, psych- psychologist, PhD lady that would determine if this person can leave or not. And um, it turns out that on the fourth day, little did I know, she was having talks with my parents. And she pointed at my dad and told him, you need to surround him with reasons to live for. And he explained to me it was um, it was a very – what's the right word to put it? Like he's never contemplated or even thought of anything like that in his life before. He was like, surround him with reasons to live for. He's my son. The sky is blue. You know, what What do you mean surround so-and-so with reasons to live for? And um, it was that moment moving forward that he was essentially put on this mm, mission to, to surround me with reasons to live for. And he created a website, boom, right then and there when he got to the hotel. Uh, Living is so big, the website. And he ordered wristbands that had the words Living is so big on them. He contacted family and friends. Hey, go to this website, livingisobig.org, and submit and put in your reasons why living is so big. You know, he, they, my parents were both very, they felt like they needed to surround me with reasons at that point. So uh, from that, that's essentially where living is so big was birthed. It was birthed in that moment once, you know, the finger was pointed at him, surrounded with reasons. And, uh, his mind was going a thousand miles per hour and he got there to the computer. You know, he ordered the wristbands. He, or he created the website. He talked to family and friends. People were putting their reasons and it was eventually once the seventh day happened and, uh, I got brought out of there front with my parents. Um, and I went with them to the hotel. He, uh, that's when he told me, check this out. And he, he turned, he put the computer on, we showed me the website. He showed me the wristbands. He was explaining about, you know, living is so big. And he was explaining to me what it meant. I was reading through the different reasons that people submitted on there. And I saw the wristband. I put it on immediately. And little did I know it was this thing that would subconsciously alter me into becoming, uh, one that lived with the ideology that living is so big uh, to this day. That is really cool. So he uh, obviously took that doctor's words to heart. Oh, yeah. That's to say the least. <laughs> he, that was the mission. So when you ended up uh, eventually, I'm thinking soon thereafter, you went back home to Florida, correct? Yeah, we did. We did. Uh, and did you have more treatment? Did you start seeing a psychologist? Did you stay on meds? What What happened? Because the day you leave after seven days of inpatient, you're not suddenly healed from depression, I'm guessing. No, you're not. It was it was something that was the um, the dose of clarity that I needed. Those four words, seeing the reasons on this website, understanding that, um, you know, my dad created this thing to help me out and um, and then really sticking it into my mind that, hey, living is so big. You're right. It was a process. There were times where not to say that I would become depressed, but there were times where I was just I'm trying to find the right word for it. I felt a little tired. I felt a little uh, the whole process of, of the spring break and even weeks before that of going through that entire charade of uh going through that entire motion of depression and leading up to the tree and all that, it completely drained me. And so when I got back to Florida, 
he essentially, you know, they surrounded me. They surrounded me with the, the newfound concept, living is so big, you know, trying to keep my mind occupied and away from what just happened with all that depression and whatnot. And it was super duper necessary. There were times where I would become, you know, um, maybe like a little uh, aggravated or annoyed. It's like, yeah, I know living is so big. Yeah, I know living is so big. Okay, okay, okay. But they would still, they would still surround me with the love, and they would still remind me. And 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 it was, um, it was a continual, continual process. And and I'm glad because you know at the time I may have not known it, but it was uh, the necessary need at the moment, just completely, essentially. Uh, I guess, in lot, for lack of better terms, it's like a form of conditionment. You, you know, if you were super duper negative, how do you get out of that state? What do you do to get out of that and to become, you know, treading again, treading the life waters and feeling more positive? There's got to be something that happens. And it was a slow process at first, but it, it sunk in deep to my mental, to my psyche. And uh, it's essentially like I flipped a switch flipped inside of my mind. And and uh, I was 100 percent for this. Living is so big. I'm going to help spread the word if it helps me. Okay, we're going to help others. And um, that's the next chapter of what we ended up doing. That's really cool. Did you did you stop your meds then after you left the hospital? What had happened was because I was still 17, when I did get back to Florida, there was a scheduled uh, periodic appointment to go see a person. And they were there to talk to me. And um, at the same time, because I was 17, you know, I had to there was like a medication going on. And, but when I turned 18, that was different. I had this notion that, uh, you know, with a strong willpower, you know, uh, there's the imbalanced chemicals in the brain. But at the same time, I was aware of this notion of the placebo effect. So on top of understanding this whole new notion of living is so big and getting that conditioned into my mind, I would tell myself, uh, no, it's okay. I don't, I don't need to take the actual medicine anymore. And because I turned 18, the, the person was like, uh, they talked to my mom and, and he was like, I can't, I can't help him if he doesn't want to take it. He's an adult at this point. He's 18. Uh, so that was one of the things where I ended up stopping it on my own because I did turn 18. And, um, I, I think it was one of those things where it helped me out initially uh, the medication did help me and it's something that will help balance out the chemicals in your brain again. But I think eventually, you know, you can't be on that your entire life. Like there, something needs to happen. An epiphany needs to happen in a, in a person's life to where they stop feeling depressed, to where they stop feeling sad, to where they can actually, you know, live life again. And I think once your chemicals balance back out and you have this epiphany and you, in your mind is conditioned differently you're able to um, live life according um, moving forward. Did you uh, wean off the meds with the support of a doctor or did you just stop cold turkey? Oh, yeah. No, when I was 18, I knew that's how it worked. If you're your own adult, that's it. I just I just stopped. No, no withdrawal symptoms? Uh, not that I can recall. Okay. I just I felt completely uh, fine with it. I, I actually felt happy because I was in the mode of thought that, you know, this is medication. I don't want to take medication anymore. I just, I just want to stick to a placebo. And, um, you know, like I said, the medication is important. It's a very good, 
it should be taken. You know, it's something that it's the, there, there are chemicals in the brain and they can't be put off balance. And, um, so I'm glad that I was 17 and I couldn't just say that at that point. Like I needed to take it because right. I couldn't have a legal say. And so I'm glad that, that happened. But then eventually, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this on my own, like quick cold Turkey. I'm going to live my life and living is so big. And it, and it, it started working its way like that for me. I do want to just point out that typically, you know, if somebody's going to stop meds, hopefully they're typically doing it with under the doctor's guidance because a lot of the medications for depression and other mental illnesses really require a weaning off slowly. So it's always good to do that with the doctor under their guidance and, and uh, supervision. But uh, so that's awesome. Tell us more about life is so big. So your dad created it. You guys ran with it. And uh, you do much more than just get other people's stories about why life is so big for them, don't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where, like I said, because it helped me, we found that it helped me. We wanted to help others. And when we were in Florida, we ended up moving to New Jersey back to where we had family. And so once we moved there, there was a brief period of time where we lived there. And then eventually there was this conclusion, our thought form between my parents where they were like, let's go on a road trip. Uh, let's sell all our things and go on this road trip to spread this ideology that living is so big and that, hey, you know, if it helped one person, it can help other people. Uh, so I was on board. I was like, yep, OK, that's cool. Let's do it. And so we did it. I literally everything, the furniture, all these things were sold. And, um, we just got on the road and we had a ledger with us and we wrote down, you know, the States we went to, we went across country. Um, and anywhere we went, we'd have a backpack with us, uh, full of wristbands. We'd have, you know, we'd take pictures with people. We'd explain to them what living is so big is about. We'd go to events. We'd go to, you know, high schools, uh, universities, um, anywhere that would accept us per se. And, uh, it was, it was, a very fun experience. And I know for certain we did help people out uh, with it because there are testimonials and there are actually letters from people that have explained how these four words have shifted them into, um, thinking different. How long were you guys on the road and how many different States do you think you hit? Oh gosh. I mean, we, it was for months at a time, for months at a time. And it, I would say there was like one road trip where we went from New Jersey down to Florida, up to New Jersey, because there was a convention down in Florida. And then, uh, you know, there was another road trip where we went around. So we went south towards like Georgia and whatnot. And then we went west going towards Texas and whatnot. And then going back around. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a, a good chunk of life essentially that was dedicated to this road trip and it was a uh, time well spent it was there i wouldn't i would never uh if i could go back and do it differently i wouldn't because i would it's just all the people that we helped is it's invaluable and so you you said the family sold the house and everything right so what happened when you came back home uh yeah well they were renting at the time and they sold all the furniture um okay pretty much what they could. I'm sure some of the things they left with my grandma, but it, it was everything that you could think of was just, um, just to lessen the amount of stuff that they had on them. And at that point it was, it was a go. 
to, to move onward and, and start telling people and traveling. That is really cool. And you and your dad have written some books as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, four in total. Um, it's funny because there, it was in 2012 was one, 2013 was another, 2014 was another, and 2015 was another. Um, and there are four, four in total. The first one in 2012 uh, was the true storybook, Living in a Big Darkness to Light. Um, and it explains, it gives you the perception. It puts you into the shoes of myself from when it started up until well, until when, you know, we started doing the road trip, that entire experience, that was the first chapter. And then there's a second chapter, which is putting yourself in my dad's shoes, what he experienced through, through his eyes regarding all of this. So that's a uh, darkness to light, the true storybook. And side note, that's also free on the website. If you just go to living is so big.org, you can actually read that for free. Um, it's at the top. You just click on it and you can you can read the true story. The second was in 2013. It was uh, Living is So Big, The Eight Living Realizations. And it's called that because it's these categories, eight categories in which mm, all reasons to live for fall under. And so you have uh, life, family, friends, feelings, enjoyment, kindness, spiritual and infinite. And anything you could possibly think of for why living is so big or for why life is worth living for falls under one of those eight categories. And it's a book explaining more along that, which is pretty cool. And the third book is called The Power of Life Appreciation. And it just it helps you go through these uh, through a process or a set of ways of going along uh, calculations to help you achieve an outcome of life appreciation. So that goes pretty in depth with that. And last but not least. The final book that we did in 2015 was um, The Distinct Facts of Living, Get to It. And uh, you can you can find that uh, also on the website. And it's just this thing that we help uh, explain our learnings of different uh, tips, formulas, techniques, and suggestions of how to achieve what we call life's dream formula and um, how to achieve um, being the master and boss of you and your life. And that's just a... It gets in, into that. That is awesome. And you guys still hit the road and do some public speaking? Oh, we do. We do. Uh, recently, though, there has been, you know, we have full-time jobs. It would be fantastic if that could be our full-time, but it just it hasn't worked out that way yet. So, you know, any places that we do get inquiries, uh, people contact us on our website, uh, anywhere. We, we definitely are open to going and speak. Uh, about everything that we've uh, learned and what we can do to help uh, when we speak to people. That is really cool. So again, if people want to book you and your dad for a speaking opportunity or if they want to look, uh, check out your books, learn more about your organization, it is livingissobig.org. That's right, livingissobig.org. And it's pretty much an archive of thousands of, of reasons that people have put it has different things as far as all the pictures of the events and places we have been it's got um, every, everything under the sun as far as what we could document and um, what we've learned you know once you if you do decide to read any of the books there's different formulas in there like life stream formula which is something to how to be uplifted and satisfied uh there's a there's a whole uh, plethora of formulas that you could read and different suggestions and things that could help one potentially, you know, feel better and to get back on track and uh, different things such as like 
you know, why we can get embarrassed under the circumstances of what we're speaking about with mental health, the stigma of not, not getting, not reaching out for help, why we should, and how it could essentially save a life if, if we choose not to become embarrassed and if we reach out for help. There's a lot of different little tidbits that could seriously help somebody out. That's really cool. And uh, I'm guessing it sounds like people can go and read what other people have written, um, why living is so big for them. And I would imagine people going to the website can write their own as well. That's right. Yeah. You'll see it on the left side of the website. There's this giant square that says submit a reason why living is so big for you. All you got to do is click on that and um, you just type in your reason. Now, once you type it in, it'll it'll get sent. We'll see it. We'll upload it. And you anyone could see your reason um, once you upload it. And there is a portion of the website which – I, I find really fascinating because it's an entire list of people's letters that have been sent to us or emails that have been sent to us. And um, there's just one that I wanted to read, if, if you didn't mind. And sure. it was, it was, it's pretty cool. It's, um, so it's an anonymous email that we received in uh, September of 2012. And it's pretty much somebody explaining what they went through once they heard it. And this is what they wrote. Hi, you don't know me, but you stopped and visited a fundraiser for AB Tech a few months back and gave everyone hugs. My spouse was there and brought me home one of your bracelets. He said he met the coolest family and showed me a photo you took with them. Little did anyone know that I was contemplating suicide. For me, it was like a sign. What are the chances that your spouse walks in with a bracelet that is meant to remind you to live your life and don't give up? Years of going to the therapist and this bracelet and your cause has touched me and changed my mind about life. The doctors never once told me living is so big. I didn't need a Band-Aid. I needed a human being to tell me all the wonderful reasons to live. I wasn't going to write, but tonight a friend's cousin killed himself, and I realized you need to know you are doing great work. The great the world needs more people like your family. I haven't thought about suicide since. Thank you. And it's things like that that really hit a chord in our hearts and knowing that this is why we're doing what we're doing. Because if it if it helped me and we're seeing it that it's helping others, it's something that it's a life of it's a it's a life endeavor. It's gonna it's gonna happen continually for the rest of our lives. Yeah, that is phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that. So, Chris, before we wrap up, I would love to ask you if somebody is listening to this show right now and they're going through a struggling point in their life, what's one piece of advice or suggestion that you'd give them? One piece of suggestion or tip or something I would give them is that you don't know, you don't know for a fact what is ahead of you. You may think it's very barren and there's nothing going on or that you're experiencing whatever you're experiencing and it's a very dark road ahead of you. But you don't know what's ahead because in the blink of an eye, anything could change. Anything could shift and you never know when someone or something might you might encounter might um, be the someone or something that you would need to meet because – it's, it's life. Life is malleable. Life is not concrete. It ebbs and flows. And if you decide to end it because of whatever reasons you validated, you will never get to experience the goodness or the good things that come out of life. And, uh, just to reconsider, just to reconsider it because it's, 
it's really not that bad. We only decide to think it's that bad with our minds. If we could just decide to look at the positive stuff instead of the negative stuff, you know, it'll, it will get better and we can make it better. Just don't give up and, and keep on, keep on pushing forward. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I want to thank you for your time to uh, interview on the depression files. I also want to thank you just for the incredible work that uh, you and your dad are doing through living is so big. Thank you. I, I appreciate you and the, the work that you're doing as well. It's, it's very important to, you know, um, break away the, the stigma and to like say support people and educate people on these subject matters. It's, you know, it's, um, I, 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 I'm very happy for what you do and I'm very happy for you allowing me to speak on here. All right. Well, thanks very much and uh, make sure you stay healthy. Will do. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.